Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Ten years ago, Rana Plaza, a garment factory in Bangladesh, collapsed. More than 1,100 people died. 2,500 workers were injured, including Aruti Rani Das. She was 17 years old and lost a leg after being trapped in the rubble for days. I feel sad. If I didn't work in that factory, this would not have happened. The Fifth Estate's Mark Kelly first met her 10 years ago when he went to Bangladesh to investigate conditions for the people who are working in those garment factories. A decade later, he returned to see what has changed, and he is with me in studio. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Remind us, this was such a huge story at the time. Remind us of the scale of this factory collapse. Yeah, April 2013, uh, Rana Plaza was an eight-story building uh, with multiple garment factories in it. It was built illegally on a swamp. Uh, It was designed only to be a three-story building. In fact, at the time of the collapse, they were building a ninth story on it. Uh, and because of that, because of the weight of all the machinery used in, in building and making clothes, it, it collapsed in 90 seconds. Workers had seen gaping cracks in the foundation the day before the collapse. They, they evacuated the building. They didn't want to go back in and they were told they had to go back in or they would be fired mm. from, from their jobs. So these people, mostly women, um, went back into that building and it would collapse. 1,134 people died. 2,500 people were injured, some for life. It was really the, one of the worst industrial accidents of our time. What were they making? They were making the, the, the clothes that we wear. I mean, the, the Literally clothes, the clothes that we the wear. The clothes that we wear that, that, that the listeners will, will be very familiar with. You've got Zara, you've got Benetton, you've got Walmart. And then there was the Canadian connection, uh, Joe Fresh, the, the Loblaw-owned brand, Joe Fresh. They were making clothes for Joe Fresh. And that's what really brought us as the CBC, our interest there is what is our Canadian connection? What, what do we need to know about the people who are making our clothes? And most importantly, why did they have to die? making clothes, something so simple. Why do they have to put their lives on the line to make our clothes? There's a lot of outrage in the wake of this, in part because, as you said, these are the clothes that people are familiar with, the brands that people are familiar with. What sort of response was there following that collapse? Well, I I think, I mean, certainly, you know, in terms of the international brands, uh, there there was this outrage because that they, they thought that the products were in good hands being made in Bangladesh. But what we really didn't know, and I think it was, it was an eye-opening experience for, for, for the brands, it was eye-opening experience for consumers, is the story behind the clothes that we wear, mm. the hands that touch the clothes that we, we wear, the working conditions of the people who make the clothes that we wear. That allow you to be able to buy the T-shirt for $5 and the pants for $10. And there's a story sewn in to every clothes, all the clothes that we wear. And it was that the fact that these people were making these clothes in, in dangerous conditions, that the, the, the buildings were not certified, that there was no safety inspections that were going on. There was just a litany of problems that nobody really cared about because all we wanted to do was get that cheap 
cheerful t-shirt mm-hmm. on, on our shoulders. And we didn't want to know the story about that. But when that building collapsed, those stories came tumbling out. There's a lot of pressure on those brands to do something about this. Um, what were those promises? Well, the big promises that came out was we, you know, we as international brands, we as, as Western countries had to do better for the workers who are making our clothes. We had to improve the working conditions. We had to improve the wages. Uh, we had to make sure that there would be proper safety inspections that would be put in place there. And, 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 and that was the most important thing. Make these places safe to make our clothes, that, that we care about the people who make our clothes. You went there a decade ago, and so you went back. What, what, what's on the site now, 10 years later? It was heartbreaking. It was our first stop uh, when we went. We, to, when we visited Bangladesh this mm-hmm. summer was to go back to Rana Plaza, and we got out of the car, and I was heart, heartbroken to see the site is now overgrown. Uh, it's an abandoned lot. It's got garbage in it you know, scraps from a neighboring garment factory. It's being used as an open toilet. There's there's a little, you know, well-worn monument that's out front that commemorates the spot. But other than that, you would never know that this was the site mm. uh, of this terrible disaster that I was there 10 years ago to see. And now it just seems forgotten. And and that was my concern as, as we were arriving there is, were all the promises forgotten? Were the commitments forgotten? Uh, were the people, you know, that, that we, we claim to care about who made our clothes, were they forgotten as well? And that's the story we really wanted to dig into. So what's changed in the last decade in those factories? Well, there's some good news. And I, and I, 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 and I think that's important to say. Mm-hmm. So one thing that happened is that the international brand signed on to something called the Accord. This was a group, but a safety inspection group that came in to say that we're going to make sure that these buildings are safer, that there are no structural issues, that there are no fire issues. And that made a profound difference. And, and the great news from that is there was an unheralded Canadian named Brad Lowen. He's from Winnipeg, mm. leading the charge here to make sure that these places weren't death traps. And, and I got to sit down with Brad before we went there. He'd never even been to Bangladesh in his life. And then he takes on this task. He's given 1,700 factories and one year to go in there with his team and make sure they would be safe for the workers who make our clothes. Fire protection-wise, which was horrendous, like very unsafe. Over half of these factories had locks on their exit doors, and we, we made them cut them off. I would get calls from the sourcing people and saying, we're, we're happy to pull out of that factory if you're saying it's unsafe. Our order should be done in two weeks. So hold on, we're happy to pull out, but we need the order to be completed first? So this, you know, he was expecting, because they were sort of a policing agency, if you will, they were expecting that they get pushback from factory owners that say, you, you, this, if this building's not safe, we're going to shut it down. But what he didn't expect is he was getting pushback from the international brands who'd signed on to this agreement mm. to say, we want to make these buildings safer. So he'd say, okay, well, we're going to have to shut it down because it's a death trap. And then they'd say, okay, but can we just finish them, you know, the order, making our order for us, and, and then we'll allow it to be shut down. What did he say? So he said no. And, and there was a movement at one point that we were, sources were telling us to try to get him fired because he was doing such a good job of making things safer. And this started to really expose the truth that we really said we, we cared and where there was a commitment to making these places safer. But what we really wanted, and we being the international brands that are in there and consumers that are part of that, we just wanted our clothes made as cheap and as quickly as possible. And when you say these places, I mean, again, we talk about Rana Plaza, but there, there are a number of different factories, right? Uh, absolutely. Where we, as he was 
looking, I mean, you've got every brand in the world that's, that's essentially working out of there. You've got 1,700 factories. You've got locks on the doors. You don't have fire exits in, in, in some places. I mean, the, 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 the litany of issues went on and on and on. And he went in and said, we're going to make this safer because that was our commitment. And that was the growing pain that, uh, that, that, that he had to operate in. But in essence, what he was doing, Matt, is he was saving lives. Mm. And that was an incredible accomplishment for him. What was the response like in the community where he was was working? How did they respond? Well, uh, for the workers, and first and foremost, this was supposed to be about the workers. The workers finally said that they were being recognized. Uh, I spoke with uh, Kalpona Akter, and she's an incredible woman. She, she started working in a garment factory when she was just 12 years old. Now she is with the leading uh, activist in terms of unions there and, and being in a union there, it can be a dangerous job. Mm. She's done that. And, and when she was there and the Accord came in and the factories were safer, she finally said, at last, we're being recognized. Phenomenal change has happened in the last 10 years. And that has happened because of the Accord. This is the first time someone counted workers as a human and worker, not like any other equipment. The Accord were international brands coming together to say that we believe that that safety inspection has to be paramount there. Mm. However, this is a great news story, right, Matt? Mm -hmm. Until it's not. Uh. Because what happens, the factory owners say, well, we don't like this. They didn't have a voice at the table. They said, we don't like being policed. We don't like being told what to do, especially by these international agency. So a factory owner took the accord to court, saying, you can't tell me how to run my business. And in essence, the accord then gets kicked out of the country, told that they're overstepping their jurisdiction, that they don't have a mandate to tell people what to do in that country. Well, this is all about protecting those workers, right? So, so what, what did you hear from the workers who are in the factories today? How do they feel about what's going on? Well, so the workers now are concerned that there's a sliding and a slipping scale that's going in there, that safety is no longer paramount. It's no longer the priority. And that's one of the big issues that we were uncovering, looking into safety inspection records, looking into some of the issues that are now recurring, and the fact that factory owners get a bigger voice and they're being able to keep the inspectors at bay, keep their businesses running, despite the fact that there are still ongoing safety issues, including safety issues for the companies, Canadian companies like Joe Fresh, Lobla owned Joe Fresh, that we went in to look into how safe are those buildings, how safe are those workers today. How difficult is it to actually talk to those workers? Before we went to Bangladesh, we were trying to line up interviews with uh, workers. And we were unable to do that. Yes, workers would talk to us on the phone. They'd give us some background, but we'd say, well, we want to show up with a, a television camera and talk to you. No way. Because they were convinced that they'd be fired. They were convinced that they would be put on a blacklist mm-hmm. and they would never be rehired. We're, we're talking about people who, have, who, who move from across the country to come to Dhaka, the capital of, of Bangladesh, to get work. And they would not... They felt that they could not jeopardize their work by telling us the reality of what it's like to work in these factories. But you did get to speak with some, and one in particular. Thanks to some great work by our colleagues on the ground in, in Bangladesh, we were able to, to speak to a woman, 24-year-old Lazina Akhtar. She had moved 300 kilometers from a small village to work in a garment factory. She's been working in that factory, making pants for Joe, Joe Fresh for a year and a half. She works 11 hours a day, six days a week. And um, her life is a struggle. And I asked her, you know, after all, all that she's done, yeah. Was it worth it? Was she, is she happy? In this overall market situation, it's difficult for us to go on. 
Since my parents are still alive and they don't want their children to suffer, so they help. I am not happy. So just to put her life into perspective, she's working 11 hours a day, six days a week, and she's making about $150 a month for all that effort. And not happy, as she said. And not happy. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned colleagues on the ground who are doing some of that work in terms of connecting you with those workers. One of them is on the line with us now, Shushmita Preetha, who is a researcher and newspaper columnist in Bangladesh. Preetha, hello. Hi. You spoke with dozens of these garment factory workers for for your research. How common are stories like Lazina's working long hours in difficult conditions for very little pay and not feeling good about that work? I mean, that's that's the basic story that you hear everywhere. Um, and with the cost of living crisis that's hit the world and in Bangladesh in particular since the pandemic, I mean, things haven't really gotten better for them since the pandemic. We thought we've seen the worst of it with billions of dollars in cancelled orders and uncertainty and people not knowing whether they'll have their next paycheck. And then, you know, the pandemic goes and then comes this cost of living crisis and they're already earning poverty wages. And now everything costs so much. Uh, most of them can't even afford basic proteins. Uh, many of them are just living off of vegetables and rice at this point, um, and they really don't know how to make ends meet. It, it may sound dramatic, but um, that's really how life is. And they're working um, overtime hours. Even working overtime hours, they're not uh, being able to earn enough to pay for their children's education, to pay for healthcare. I spoke to so many people who just who just like pushing um, whatever illnesses they have inside and trying to uh, ignore it and, and hoping that it just goes away. Of course, it, it doesn't. What are they doing? What are those workers doing, if anything, to try to change the industry that they are part of? Is there any, is there, do they have any possibility of reshaping that industry? Well, so I don't know if you know, so every five years, there's the minimum wage uh, in Bangladesh is revised. So last year, minimum wage was revised um, and it was increased from Taka 8,000 to Taka 12,500, um, which in Canadian dollars would roughly be, you know, $90 to $150. Um, in comparison, workers were asking for um, 24,000 um, Taka, which would come to around, I think... 293 Canadian dollars, because that's how much they thought they needed to make the ends meet. Um, So when the government, when the minimum wage board um, and the government declared less than half of what they were asking, workers were really upset. They got out on the streets, they waged protests, uh, they said this is not enough, this is disrespecting us. And unfortunately, instead of listening to the workers, instead of paying their, their dues, what they did was they brutally assaulted them, the government, um, the owners and other state apparatuses. Since then, thousands of workers um, have been in hiding. Hundreds of them have been arrested in multiple cases. 
And there's fear in general that they will be arrested if they don't toe the line, if they speak up, if they continue to protest. There's now fear in the factories. Workers don't, they, they cannot speak up because they don't know if they'll be arrested or fired. Mark, you were able to talk to some of the, the factory owners, right? What, what, what did they say about the working conditions that, that Preeta is, is describing? One of the starkest uh, contrasts, Matt, that we had in our time was going for, we speak to Lazina, she's living in a 10 by 10 cement room with a roommate sleeping on the floor, not even a mattress, not a kitchen, not a closet, nothing. This is, this is what the worker can afford. Mm. Then we go to, the, to speak to the, the, the association that represents uh, factory owners that's living, moved into this gleaming steel and glass building with an infinity pool and a gym and a, you know, this beautiful conference room. And it was unbelievable. This is an incredibly profitable industry. And so the, the owners, as far as they're concerned, that life is pretty good for the workers there. That, that yes, you know, we, we have to increase their wages and we're working on increasing their wages because they think that that's going to be good for business. So we spoke to a man named Farouk Hassan. He leads the BGMEA, which is the industry association, to talk about the plight of the workers. I believe that what you have seen, uh, you will not see in future because we are trying to make their salary a higher salary. We should pay them so that they can perform because happy workers is a good workers. Happy workers are good workers. And as Preeta was saying, Workers have died in protest fighting to get a wage increase. They can barely make ends meet. They don't sound particularly They're happy. They're not happy. And, that, and that's the reality. But, but there, there's, there's this impression that they want to put out the message to the world is that there are happy workers there. But they're also trying to put pressure on the brands themselves that they need to do better, that they need to pay more to make these workers happy workers. Preeta, how much of the responsibility is with the factory owners versus those brands who, who's, whose clothes are being made in those factories? Yeah, I think it's a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem of global capitalism and supply chain. So I think instead of blaming each particular stakeholders, I think we need to look at the whole system and see how each is contributing to a much bigger problem, right? So on one hand, local factory owners are doing this to the workers. And on the other hand, buyers are also pressurizing uh, local suppliers for cheaper clothes, like they're paying per unit prices are going down. Um, even since Rana Plaza, even with all of the investments that Bangladeshi factories were compelled to make, which is, of course, for the better, um, the unit price that uh, U.S. companies pay to Bangladesh has not increased, which has mm. actually gone down. And then we saw during COVID how global brands uh, cancelled almost $3.7 billion worth of orders in Bangladesh. Um, they didn't think at all about what would happen to the workers. Then they had no moral qualms about how the workers would feed themselves. So I think there's also hypocrisy on the brand's end and an unwillingness to really do anything concrete. You told the CBC, uh, I don't think the international brands are really committed to anything. They talk about commitment to workers' rights only as a PR strategy because they don't want their woke consumers to have to deal with the guilt of buying from sweatshops in Bangladesh. That, that doesn't sound as though much has changed. Um, unfortunately not. So I think not much has changed. And I think it's really time for the global brands to put their money where their mouth is. And if they care about living wages of workers, if they really care about work conditions, then they should do better and they should commit 
to legally binding agreements for a price premium or contribution towards living wages on every garment purchase. Tell me more about that, because we saw those Canadian companies like Joe Fresh promising Mm -hmm. in the wake of the Rana Plaza uh, collapse to do better. Mm -hmm. So specifically, if you say that, that many of these companies are just spinning PR, what specifically could they do to make sure that those workers are better protected so that they can actually afford uh, a roof over their heads and afford food uh, to eat? So I think the reason the accord that Mark talked about was so powerful was because it was a binding agreement. For the first time, there was a binding agreement uh, with the brands, uh, with the workers' representatives that, you know, that said that brands were committed to something. So I think we need something like that for living wages where brands commit to a minimum um, living wage and they commit to a price premium, you know, so that instead of countries being pitted against each other, they come to us, we'll will provide the cheapest product to you with the cheapest human resource. The brands say, no, you have to you have to pay certain living wage and only then will be sourced from you. And to back it up, we will actually pay a premium so that it's profitable for you as well as for me to invest in better human resources. Mm. Mark, uh, Loblaw and its clothing arm, Joe Fresh, found itself in an unwelcome spotlight a decade ago. What is Joe Fresh saying now? about the practices that we've been talking about in Bangladesh. What's interesting and what, what Preet is talking about, I mean, 10 years ago, you could buy a t-shirt at Joe Fresh for about eight bucks. We went into a store the other day here in Toronto and there were t-shirts that were on the on the sales rack for $8.94. Mm. Look at inflation today. How can it be that a t-shirt could sell the same as it was, was 10 years ago today? It's a good question. And that is where the squeeze, that's where the rubber hits the road and who's being squeezed the most, it's the workers themselves. So, and, and that's the problem in, in a nutshell. So, you know, we, we asked Loblaw for, for an interview. We asked him for an interview 10 years ago. They said, no, we asked him for an interview 10 years later. They still said, no, they sent us a, a statement because we wanted to talk about these sure. issues, about what their role, can they do more? They can pay more. I mean, they, they can definitely pay more if they want to. Any brand can pay more if they, if they choose to. The company did send us a statement and they want to point out that the minimum wage has increased in the past decade and they support that. And they add the companies also provided more than $5 million in compensation for the individuals and families affected by the collapse of Rana Plaza. And they also point out they have seven employees on the ground in Bangladesh that will go in and do some safety inspections at times. And they've pulled out of two factories that they've found to be unsafe in recent years. And in a statement, they wrote that Loblaw is committed to transparency and accountability and their global supply chain to drive positive change and protect the rights and the well-being of workers where their products are made. It is the consumer that ultimately has a lot of say in this. And so for people who are buying the 1099 t-shirt, what do people need to know about, in this country, what do people need to know about the products that they're buying? If, if it is that cheap, it's that cheap for a reason, Matt. And I, I think what all consumers just really need to remember is that there, there are people. There's not machines that make clothes. There are people that make clothes. And by pushing to get clothes made cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, there is a human cost to that. And, and that's the human cost that we were able to see with our eyes that we want to bring to, to consumers' uh, attention, to, to, to meet people like Lazina living in a 10 by 10 foot room as she works 66 to 70 hours a week mm. to make the clothes we, we wear. You were able to speak a decade ago with, we mentioned at the beginning, that 17-year-old who lost her leg in the Rana Plaza collapse. And then 10 years later, we're able to 
reconnect with her. How how is she doing now? Uh, Matt, we found her living in a in a small village. She goes by the name Shumi now. She's she's married. She has an eight year old child. She's pregnant with another child. Her her life, as she describes it, has been a struggle mm. because she has a prosthetic leg. She says she's too slow now to work making fast fashion. So she hasn't been working for years. She did get some compensation money years ago. She needs about twelve hundred dollars every year to replace that prosthetic leg. And just to put that in perspective, mm-hmm. that's about the annual salary of a garment worker. And she's not working right now. And that's why she says her life has become a struggle. And she feels really in the end that she has been forgotten after the world paid so much attention to those victims from Rana Plaza. And we sat down and, and I, I wanted to ask her about where does your life go from here? When, when I met her 10 years ago, she had dreams. What happened to those dreams? And that's what we talked about. Now I have no more dreams. I would like to remind them that they have employed workers like us. They used us to make their clothes. We died for this. Now we have no hands, no legs. They didn't give any value to our lives. They should be judged. It's quite a story. We often do these stories and we will forget, uh, to your point, about perhaps some of the people behind them. You move on, you go on to the next thing. Um, important to go back and see what has and hasn't changed. Mark, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Preeta, thank you. Thank you so much. Shashima Preeta is a researcher and newspaper columnist in Bangladesh. Mark Kelly is host of The Fifth Estate. You can watch his story tonight on CBC Television and CBC Gem or this afternoon on YouTube. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.